great to see everyone here this morning. I wonder how many of you thought you were coming to the first service. Um, hope everybody's doing well with one less hour of sleep. Um, we're going to look this morning at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 16, okay? So if you'll take your Bibles, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts, and you'll find our passage on page 912. Um, so if you're using the Bible in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you, you'll find it on page 912. Acts chapter 4, now begin reading for us in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to sing of your goodness and grace and mercy to us in Christ. We pray that as we turn to your word now, that you'd give us clarity and insight. Lord, we pray that as we turn to your word, that we would continue in worship. That we would continue as we reflect on your word to 
praise you and to give you honor and glory for who you are and to submit our lives to you in reverent fear and worship. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So we've been in a series in the book of Acts, and the first seven chapters of the book of Acts focus on the first century church in Jerusalem. In these chapters, we really get a glimpse of Christianity in its earliest stages. And as we study these early days of Christianity, we see that there are stories that Luke provides for us. There are stories of personal transformation, like the beggar who was miraculously healed back in chapter 3. And we know from the account in Acts, and we know from the larger scope of Scripture, that the gospel brings about individual and personal transformation. But while recording these individual stories of personal transformation, we also see that Luke stresses the power of the gospel to create a new humanity, a new community called the church. We see that again in our text this morning, and it's a theme throughout the book of Acts. In particular, what we see in our text this morning is that the gospel creates a generous and pure community that is both distinct and attractive. The gospel creates a generous and pure community that is both distinct and attractive. Now, of course, this is the type of community that God would have us to be here at Berea for our own good and for the good of our city and for the good of the nations. And so I want us to take time this morning and look at this unique gospel community that's revealed to us here in Acts, this church in Jerusalem. We'll consider it under four headings. First of all, gospel experience and generosity. Secondly, a good example. Third, a bad example. And then fourth, a community distinct and attractive. Okay? So gospel experience and generosity, a good example a bad example, and then a community distinct and attractive. First of all, gospel experience and generosity. Look there in verse 32 to 35, and we read these words. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as, many, uh, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, one of the things we should point out here as we read uh, these verses is that just a couple of chapters earlier, we read a passage that is very similar to this passage. So if you go back to chapter 2, And we read verses 42 to 45 in chapter 2. We read these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Here it is, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So both of these passages, both in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, both of these passages describe the collective generosity of the church in Jerusalem. But there's another similarity, not just the similarity or parallel to their collective generosity, but in both of these passages what we see is that uh, they follow a significant experience of God's grace and power. So let me show you this. In the first 
In the first description, back in chapter 2 of the church's generosity, we see that it follows, so that description of generosity comes right after Peter preaching the gospel at Pentecost. And you might remember this event. Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches the good news of God's grace. The text tells us that the people are cut to the heart. They repent of their sins. They trust in Jesus. And some 3,000 souls are added to the church. This was a powerful movement of God's Spirit in which people came to see the glory and the beauty of God's grace. And then what immediately follows that is a description of the church's radical generosity. Now, in this second description of the church's collective generosity in chapter 4, we see that it follows the account of the church gathering together to pray because they are under attack and persecution from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So in chapter 4, verse 31, we saw this in chapter 4, verses 23 uh, to 31. They gather together, they're praying, and, and, and they're asking God to give them more boldness. And then we see the conclusion of it in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In other words, God shows up, right, in a unique and special way. He is among them, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit once again. And what happens immediately after that? Immediately following those verses is a description of the church's radical generosity. So on both occasions, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, we see that a true experience of the glory and the beauty of God's grace in the gospel leads to radical generosity. Now, as we're talking about this idea of of gospel experience or Christian experience, we need to define that. What what do I mean by that? So so this, this type of experience, Christian experience, leads to radical generosity. What is that experience? Well, we should say that some people fear Christian experience. You know, for some people, God's love, and in one sense, God's grace is all about knowledge, facts, how do you know that God loves you? Well, you just know it, right? You just Bible says it, and you know it. People like this tend to be emotionally constricted. They don't encourage themselves or others towards experience, spiritual experience, because they fear that that leads to extremes or fanaticism. On the other hand, we know that there are Christians who only live for Christian experience. They're always trying to find the next high the next big emotional wave to ride. Oftentimes they're careless and they're thinking about their faith and may easily be led astray. They base their entire Christian experience on their feelings and so they're up and down all the time and uncertain about where they stand. Now either one is an extreme, right? Either one is an unhealthy and unhelpful extreme. So, So what is... Genuine Christian experience, gospel experience. Well, many have likened, and it's hard to describe in some ways. This illustration may help. Many have likened Christian experience to a father and a son walking down a road together. You can imagine that in your mind. A father and a young son walking down the road together. They're walking, they're talking, they're enjoying one another's company. And the son knows that his father loves him. But then in a moment, the father grabs his son up into his arms and he hugs him and gives him a deep, worn hug. And he says to his son, son, I love you. I love you so much. 
And he puts his son back down. You see, in that moment, the son not only knows that the father loves him, but he's experiencing it. It's much like gospel experience, spiritual experience, when the gospel, when the love of the father shown to us in Christ comes, becomes real to us. And that type of knowledge and experience in, relational, in that relational dynamic is a mark of a strong, healthy relationship. Now, I have two sons. As I think about my boys, I don't want my boys just to know that I love them. I want them to experience it. When I hug them, when I take them on a special trip, when I wrestle with them in the floor... At the same time, neither do I want them to doubt my love for them when I tell them to clean up their room and they don't feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You see, in a mature relationship, we do things even when we don't feel like it. Like read our Bibles and pray and give and go to church. And at the same time, we not only, when we not only know but experience another's love for us, that relationship is strengthened and we're encouraged. In the same way, my friends, we not only need to know God's love for us, His grace for us, but we need to taste it. It needs to become a fresh reality in our own minds and hearts, and this happens often over and over again by God's grace in our lives. And when that happens, we're strengthened and we're encouraged and we're renewed. And one of the evidences of that happening in our lives, and there are many, but one specifically that's highlighted here, is that then we become generous towards others. I mean, did you get the song that we sang this morning, the hymn we sang? Jesus paid it all, right? All to him we owe. He paid it all, everything. The gospel says if God has been so generous to you in Christ, would you not then want to be generous to others? Okay, so that's Christian or gospel experience and generosity. Secondly, let's consider a good example. This is found in verse 36 and 37. There we read, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke's description of the collective life of the church together is followed by a man who epitomized the love and generosity that was present in the church. So you've got the collective generosity of the church, and Luke says, you want to know what that looks like individually, here's an example. And out of love for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Barnabas sells a field that he owns and gives the money to the church. Luke presents Barnabas to us as an exemplary member of the church in Jerusalem, one to be honored, one to be emulated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who lived during the days of Nazi Germany, was imprisoned uh, by the Nazis because of his resistance to Hitler and then ultimately uh, executed. During his life, he wrote the Christian classic, Life Together. Some of you, I know, have read it because we did this book in in one of our home groups not too long ago. But in that book, he writes about the ministry of bearing, uh, reflecting on the New Testament exhortation that Christians are to bear one another's burdens. And this is what Bonhoeffer writes. Listen, quote, The brother is a burden to the Christian precisely because he is a Christian. For the pagan, the other person never becomes a burden at all. 
He simply sidesteps every burden that others impose upon him. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. The burden of men was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ. And so why, given what Bonhoeffer says there, why why would Luke record the act of this man Barnabas for us here? Why is he an example for us to follow? I think Bonhoeffer would reply by saying, because Barnabas, like his Savior, the Lord Jesus, joyfully bore the burden of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the basis by which we should want to bear one another's burdens by being generous to one another is because Christ bore our burden of sin and guilt and death so that we might be forgiven and free. Barnabas exemplified true Christian love, love that was inspired by the gospel. His love was not mere sentiment, but it was marked by action and sacrifice. His Savior willingly suffered the loss for the good of others, and for he willingly suffered, uh, like his Savior, uh, loss for the good of others and for the good of the church. Now, as we move, we have the first example of Barnabas here, or the first mention of Barnabas here in Acts chapter 4. But as we move further along in the book of Acts, we'll discover that Barnabas goes on to be used by, in great ways by God. He becomes a companion and an encouragement to Paul after Paul's conversion. He joins Paul on his missionary journey efforts and is used by God to take the gospel where Christ has never been named, where Christ has never been known or loved. But really, in some ways, as we read this first mention of Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, really it should be no surprise to us that this man goes on to be used in great ways by God. The first mention, the reason I say that is because the first mention of Barnabas reveals Barnabas' heart towards money and possessions. And you just get the sense that this guy, if that's the way, if that's the way he views money and possessions, he's going to be used by God in great ways. We see it over and over again in Scripture. Our disposition towards money is a clear reflection of our disposition towards Christ and the gospel. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what you do with your money, Jesus says, is a direct reflection of where your heart will be. Others have said it this way. If you want to know what someone's relationship with God is like, look at their checkbook. Now that may be a little bit dated. Maybe we should say credit card statement or record of ATM. But nonetheless, the point stands. And one of the things that's so compelling, I think, about the example here of the church in Jerusalem and the church with Barnabas is that it's so tangible. You know, money, in in many ways, money is abstract. Money is just a piece of paper. And who cares about a piece of paper? But that money, that, that piece of paper represents stuff and possessions, right, that you or I can purchase. That's what we really care about. No one really loves money. We love the stuff that money can buy. And here, 
Barnabas, you see in the text, sells a field, a track, or a lot of land. Now, we know that land is very valuable. It was in Barnabas's day as well. And I just wonder, thinking about what Barnabas does here, I wonder if we were to, by some means, inherit land, what would we do with it? What would we be compelled to do? I don't think, based on this passage, that we are obligated to sell the land and give everything away, although God may move upon us to do that, and that may be a very good thing. But would we see it as an opportunity to be generous? Would we see it as an opportunity to support Christ's church? Would we see it as an opportunity to help other brothers and sisters in Christ? Would we see it as an opportunity to advance gospel mission? And notice with Barnabas, it's land, but notice with the rest of the church, verse 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Any of the things, this is stuff, this is what they possessed. Verse 34, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Their lands or houses, the stuff they owned, they were giving it away that they might support Christ and His church. And their love for Christ, their love for fellow Christians, their love for Christ's mission was obviously more than their love for stuff and possessions. We see very clearly here that the church in Jerusalem held their possessions and their stuff loosely. And they valued being generous more than having a big screen TV or an iPhone or the latest car or the newest clothes. Let me say, it's not necessarily wrong that we possess any of those things. But if we want those things more than we want to give in worship to Christ, more than we want to support Christ's church, more than we want to give to advance Christ's mission, then a gospel dysfunction has taken place in our hearts. And we need to be aware of that. It was evident from the life of Barnabas as well as these early Christians, that they loved Christ and they loved the gospel more than their possessions. And they saw their money and they saw their possessions as a tool to advance Christ's mission. Third, let's consider a bad example. And this is found in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. Look there in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property... And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part, part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him, up, wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So 
We have an ideal that's presented to us in chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, as it's a representation of the collective generosity of the church. We have a good example of the ideal in Barnabas in chapter 4, verses 36 to 37. And now we have, in contrast, this bad example. And as we think about the sin of Ananias and Sapphira here, I I want us to consider what what was it that, that compelled them to sin and to lie in this way? I mean, obviously, we're in the realm of speculation somewhat here. But perhaps Ananias and Sapphira were envious of Barnabas's high standing among the apostles in the congregation. You can imagine that after Barnabas uh, made this great act of generosity in selling this field and then giving the land to the church and to help those within the church, you could imagine that the church is abuzz with the generosity of Barnabas. You could imagine people saying, did you hear what Barnabas did? He sold that valuable piece of real estate that was his outside of the city and contributed the money to the church and for the relief of the poor. No wonder the apostles call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Perhaps Ananias and Sapphira want people to talk about them like that, to be in the spotlight, to receive the praise of the apostles and the congregation. Whatever the motivation is, that may very well be the motivation, They lied about what they sold, what they received, and what they were giving. They sold their property. They brought some of the profits to the apostles under the impression that they were devoting everything they had received from the purchase to the church. But secretly, they withheld some for themselves. It's important to note here that their sin is not in their withholding some, but their sin is in their deceit and their lying. Notice in verse 4, I believe this is what Peter is communicating when he says, while it remained, that is the, um, the possession that they had, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, it belonged to you. You were under no obligation to sell it. And after it was sold, Peter says, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you were free to do with the prophets that you received from that purchase as you saw fit under the lordship of Christ. Then Peter goes on, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In other words, your sin is not that you kept some of the money from the sale of the property, but in you lying about the sale and the amount of your giving. And then we see the shocking consequence of their sin. Because of their sin... God chooses to strike them dead. We see this first with Ananias in verse 5, and then with Sapphira in verse 10. We should note as well that this is not the only occasion in Scripture where a man or a woman was struck dead by God. You remember uh, Lot's wife in Genesis chapter 19, who ignored the command of God to resist looking back on Sodom and Gomorrah as the city was being destroyed. And she looked back and the scriptures tell us that she was turned to a pillar of salt. Or do you remember the example of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 who offered to God strange worship, worship that the Lord had not authorized and they were consumed with fire. Do you remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6 who touched the ark of the Lord with his hand, though God had set it apart to be holy? 
and God struck him and he died. Those are Old Testament examples, but then as we come into the New Testament, we have this example here in Acts, and then we also have Paul's words to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he informed the church in Corinth that some of the people there had become ill and even fallen asleep, which is another way of saying died, because they dishonored the broken body and shed blood of Jesus at the Lord's table. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe these examples seem unusually shocking to you. But these are examples of the righteous holiness and purity of God that we see in the Scriptures. Thankfully, we know that God in His extraordinary mercy and grace does not bring upon immediate judgment like this in most cases. Most of us do not receive immediate judgment for our sin, and we can be very thankful for that. Such immediate judgment is rare, even in Scripture. But from the testimony of Scripture, we recognize that there are times when God, because of clear and blatant rebellion and sin, chooses to purify His people by direct intervention. Although God has chosen to do this at times in the past, to intervene directly in a dramatic fashion to purify His people, we know that God most often intends to work through the people of His church to provide accountability and discipline when there is significant sin. This is what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 18, and He lays out for us the process of church discipline. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, or in other words, as a non-Christian no longer identified with the community of faith who's professing faith in Jesus Christ. These words of Jesus were the basis for Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was a man in the congregation who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul writes and admonishes the congregation to deal with this. In 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Or in other words, no longer identified with the community of faith that's professing faith in Jesus Christ and professing to follow Him as Lord. The community as a faith must be purified. This sin must be dealt with. The goal of this process that's laid out for us in Matthew 18, and an example of it in 1 Corinthians 5 and other places in Scripture, the goal is always redemptive, that the individual who's being addressed in their rebellion and sin would come to a point of repentance and be restored and be forgiven. In those cases where one's sin is clearly in violation against Scripture and one's attitude is blatantly unrepentant and rebellious, the church must fulfill their responsibility before the Lord to protect the testimony of the gospel and the church, and that member should be removed. 
We see this in the book of Acts in, in terms of God's holiness and His commitment to the purity and the unity of His church. We see it in the example of Ananias and Sapphira. We also see it in the process of church discipline that is outlined for us in the Bible. God is passionate about His people genuinely, faithfully following Him. Fourth and finally, a community distinct and attractive. Look there in verses 12 through 16 and we read these words. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, what do we see here as a result, in light of the events that have taken place, the generosity and the discipline that the Lord inflicted upon the church regarding Ananias and Sapphira? What do we see coming out of that? Notice that Luke comments, going a few verses up earlier, notice that Luke comments on the ethos or the disposition of the community after Ananias and Sapphira's death. In verse 5, he writes, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And then notice Luke writes, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then also in verses 10 and 11, Notice, he writes, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Verse 11, and great fear, same response, or same result, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So there was a holy fear that came upon God's people as a result of what God had done in dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. And so what, what happened as a result of that? Well, this is happening, and then God is also working in a supernatural way by His Spirit through the apostles to heal many people. And what, what does all this result in in the city of Jerusalem? Notice verse 13, the response. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now there's a church growth strategy for you, right? Want to grow your church? They wouldn't join they didn't dare join them, but held them in high esteem. When the world looked upon the church, they saw the seriousness with which they lived out their faith, and some feared the consequences of half-hearted commitment and stayed away. The church was marked by a holy fear. But notice also, others were mysteriously drawn and added to their number. So the very next verse Verse 14, we read these words. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. So maybe it is quite a church growth strategy, right? A community that's serious about their faith, serious about Jesus, living out the implications of the gospel. There will be some, we see here, who stay away, but there will be others who are mysteriously drawn. The gospel in the church in Jerusalem created a radical generosity, a holy purity in this community that was unusually distinct and mysteriously attractive.
more and more people as a result came to trust in Jesus. More and more people were changed by His grace. More and more people joined the church. My friends, by God's grace, may we be such a community. It's been affected by God's grace and mercy shown to us in Christ so that we are radically generous and earnest about following Christ in obedience. It's the kind of church I believe that God would have us to be. Let's pray that He would do such a work among us. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word and for Your love. And Father, we thank You for how You reveal to us in Your Word who it is that you, what it is that You would have us to be individually and as a people, as a church. Father, we do pray that we as a people would be increasingly um, struck by the mercy and grace that You have shown us in Christ. That we would not just know at an intellectual level, but we would even experience Your love and grace for us as we are encouraged and comforted and strengthened by Your grace. Lord, we pray that as that takes place in our lives, that we would be marked by a radical generosity. Father, I thank you for those even within our body who give and faithfully give and are exceedingly generous with others. Lord, encourage them in that. Lord, we thank you that when we give, we don't lose anything, that we are storing up treasures in heaven that will be kept forever. Lord, for those who are negligent in giving and tight-fisted, Lord, I pray that by your grace you would convict, and Lord, that there might be repentance. Lord, we also pray that we would be a community that's serious about following you in obedience and faithfulness. Lord, we know that that can only be done by your grace and by the power of your Spirit. For those who are fighting sin and seeking to walk in faithfulness and obedience, Lord, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen them. Lord, for those who are careless when it comes to sin, Lord, I pray that you would convict. And I pray, Father, that each one of us would be marked by a true repentance and an eagerness to follow Christ as Lord. Father, we thank you for the evidences of your grace in our church body and Lord, we thank you for the good things you're doing. We pray that you would press us deeper into it. Lord, we do ask that by your mercy and grace, we would be a unique, distinct community that's committed to following Christ and marked by radical generosity. We pray as a result that many would come to know the goodness of the gospel. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.